Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gordney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and Wayne Angel Tree of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research, and finally, my fellow graduate assistant, Lawson Medlin. All right. Well, there's been lots of activity around the world going on. As we know, we see the headlines and Thought it'd be interesting to think about what should the role of the United States be in the rest of the world? So we've got the, the conflict with uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. We've had a Chinese balloon floating across the United States, interventions in, in various areas. So there's things happening today as well as things that have happened in the past. And so I think this opens the door for our uh, philosopher friend over here, Dr. Clark, to chime in on on moral responsibilities, maybe, and Dr. Jacobson with his economic Christian perspective. Do we have a, a faith component on what we should do? What would Jesus do if Jesus was president? Uh, would he be running around the world? Well, I guess he did kind of do that, but that was for other purposes, not necessarily a fit for all things uh, related to engaging in humanity. So I don't know, I might have opened up a big bag of worms, but you know, we all have different opinions and uh, you know, what is the right level or should it be left at a personal level? So for for me, with the research I've done on charitable giving in the past, that goes way back to my dissertation. Um, I have a different take on the government's role with giving as opposed to private giving. And so I think there's some negative effects of us relying on our government for doing charitable activities that it might lessen what would be done privately. And so I think some of these international events Recently, Turkey had a terrible earthquake, and the U.S., among many other nations, have stepped up to try to do something. I sometimes sit back and say, well, what if the governments didn't do anything? Would would there be a U.S. private charitable organization that would raise funds? And they, we knew that that was the only source of U.S. help. Might they even get more money to help people in Turkey than us kind of like, oh, yeah, the U.S. government's got us covered. Our, our contribution is done. Uh, I'm not so sure we wouldn't raise more money to help the Turkish uh, problem uh, with dealing with the earthquake if we had it exclusively in private hands. The United States is the most charitable nation on earth. That's well documented. And so we will step forward. We do care for our fellow uh, man wherever they live. We've just shown that over the years. So I'm not so sure this public giving thing is all it's cracked up to be. Well, that was a lot. Uh, <laughs> that was the tee up. The There's like 75 different questions there. One is like, what should the presence of the U.S. be militarily in the rest of the world? And another question is, what kind of presence should the United States have as a state when it comes to natural disasters in the rest of the world? And finally, uh, can either of those can either of those roles just be completely privatized and just be done by private citizens? Um, so I think the biggest question is the military one. 
because I think that that's where the majority of our public dollars go. And even when even when we are told that a lot of our the aid that we're giving is humanitarian. I actually think it's usually used. Um, it's tinged uh, with our military interests in mind at the same time. So like humanitarian aid, of course, goes to Ukraine. There is, of course, a you know, a genocide going on in China with the Uyghur Muslims at the same time. So the, the directions in which we are our attention is focused even for humanitarian aid seems to me to be uh, completely tied up with the military industrial complex in the United States. So I would uh, like to reduce the role of the United States all across the board. Um, I would like reduce the amount of bases that we have overseas. I would like to reduce our military presence other places. And I would I would prefer it if we would stay out of, of skirmishes that, that go on between other countries. Uh, and why is that? Because I don't think that what we do ends up being beneficial. We've, we're, it's been obvious pretty much since the beginning of the Ukraine war, but you know, documents are still coming out, I think this week, that sh- showed that the Zelensky and Putin governments were close to an agreement a week into the conflict. And, and uh, the US administration blocked that agreement. And our military industrial complex is more than happy to keep conflicts going on where it involves massive amounts of suffering and just like a a kind of wholesale destruction of wealth if the military industrial complex thinks that it's uh, it can leverage that to expand its uh, control or power. Yeah. So I like when we generally think of we, we could start with militarism and kind of like move out from there, because I think that that's maybe like the primary avenue which we impact the world and then kind of some secondaries. Philosophically, I align with pretty strongly with one of the quotes of John Quincy Adams, one of the founders, though I think in practice, he actually didn't live up to this quote, but such is the case frequently. But he gave a speech in which he was talking about the role of America and liberty and, uh, you know, referring to America, she here for the pronouns, Adam says, wherever the standard of freedom and independence shall be unfurled or has been or shall be unfurled, there will be her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is a well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is a champion and a vindicator of only her own. And so I think that's basically my take on what the United States role should be with respect to liberty, is that we as a people who experience the benefits of liberty uh, certainly our hope is that fold across the world, but I don't think that it should be in America's scope to go and try to actively create it throughout the world. And, you know, my my thoughts are kind of similar to Justin's in, in one sense. And I, I also have like, you know, my main, main argument, and I'll, I'll say one thing and then I'll kind of step back. So I'm going to go off on a tangent here for a second. But Russ, you had mentioned like, you know, if Jesus was president, well, I don't think Jesus would be present. I think that's one of the first like acknowledgments that Christians should make is it seems that actually throughout Jesus's life, he had a very, it seems almost intentional, the extent to which he avoided political conversation. When people tried to press him on things, he gave answers that were difficult to comprehend. So the avoidance of things political seemed intentional. Now that doesn't mean Christians can't be involved in politics or something like that, but it should tell us something about the importance and the emphasis of these sorts of things. And so you know, what can Christians learn about politics? How should it be done? 
I think a really good start is you know, the, what is it? The Hippocratic oath is that, you know, the, the rules first do no harm. Is that right? I'm not mixing mm-hmm. things up. So this is our oath for doctors. The first thing they have to take is the first role of a doctor is to do no harm. I think that sort of view of America as an entity uh, is the most important. And so when we're talking about like foreign conflict and why I'm against it, I think just our, our track record and you can figure out like theoretically the reasons why this is true is we, we do harm when we, you know, go abroad and try to enforce liberty. We fail to do it. Uh, we're using essentially illiberal or, uh, you know, un-American means to achieve liberal or American ends. And I, I just don't think that that works. I think we have a good history showing it doesn't work. So I think it makes sense that it doesn't work. I don't think we have the ability to make the world a more free place. I think when we try with our military, we make it a less free place. And I think actually a lot of the problems we see today are the results of America's bad foreign interventions in the past. Maybe not all of the problems, but a lot of them. Yeah, Hayek's fatal conceit comes to mind. So he, we go in thinking if we just bring democracy or we take out this autocratic ruler and show them the way of the West, that will get these good results. And I think part of that is just a lack of understanding and comprehension of the complexities of the real world. And that's what Hayek referred to as the fatal conceit that man thinks central planning to some degree can be successful in creating human flourishing. And uh, Hayek was just the opposite, saying that that's not going to happen unless we start with free men and women to be able to pursue their own means, because all of the knowledge that makes them happy and ultimately society happy cannot be known by any central planner or or one single group of people. So I, I feel like these military interventions also go against that idea. And it's, uh, it, I think it ends up being fatal, like literally, right? Yeah. We, we, we go into the country bringing the way of the West, thinking it'll help, but really completely lack the understanding of, of what we'd be bringing in uh, causes more harm than good. So I think I'm on with both of you two in that regard. Yeah, this will probably be outdated by the time we release the podcast. But like over the last week, we had the whole Chinese spy balloon thing. And there were some people like uncomfortable with the idea that there was a balloon, like maybe taking pictures. <laughs> and then you can consider the Middle East. And what they dealt with was uh, U.S. drones that would fly over them and you could see them. And they shot missiles down and blew people up with no relation to at least to the people on the grounds to their actual behavior, right? The, wedding parties. Yeah. W- wedding parties, hospitals, yeah. um, you know, some by mistake, some on purpose, U.S. aid, basically workers. I mean, people who contract with our, our government to make things better. And so, you know, imagine your perception of liberty. If the country that holds the banner of liberty is raining missiles down upon you, you know, more than just like a spy balloon. <laughs> and, you know, th- this isn't like my unique, this whole, you know, using non-liberal means to attain liberal ends like my dissertation advisor just wrote a whole book on this and so this is where i'm getting a lot of this is he has a very clear thinking on this and yeah he brings up hayek Hayek too it's like this is a a planning problem that we maybe can't solve and it's time to just acknowledge that kind of switching from military back to uh straight charitable acts i'm curious why do we not allow states to do this i i get because it's federal and federal is supposed to deal with outside conflicts well federal has federal power with uh, the military, but states probably have less power. If people really, really, and I, I'm not really supporting this, I'm just saying, why has it not been done? But if if state powers represent their people more and they really want to be charitable towards the other countries, why do states themselves not participate in that environment? 
I mean, one reason might be because states don't control uh, the money supply. Like states have a tighter budget requirement than the mm. federal government does. So they have to be more responsible. Yeah. And <laughs> and to the extent that we want giving to represent individuals, I mean, why stop at the state? Why not just go all the way down to the individual level? And, you know, sometimes people say like, well, how would how would it work if, you know, if we're going to help? How does how does aid look or this, you know, uh, if it's all the way down to the individual level? And I, I don't really know because I don't I don't do it. But I know somebody who does. I know somebody who uh, is involved in a project that goes down to Guatemala all the time, right? So <laughs> yeah. what you could say something about maybe like how that, what that actually looks like in practice and whether or not that seems to breed the kind of ill will that uh, a drone bopping, dropping bombs for democracy looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a loaded one. And and yeah, so my, my thoughts are, it works great. <laughs> my, my wife knows the people that were helping intimately and talks regularly with them and, and gets involved with not only their material well-being which uh, uh, but also their education and other life's problems and so the level of help can be so much better when it's driven down to the individual level and I, I think uh, even if we want to tie this back to a, a Christian perspective I mean I think those relationships of helping your neighbor I've I don't think there's theologians are necessarily in agreement with me, but I know there are some that the neighbor means somebody close to you or somebody that's nearby you. It might be a stranger, but somebody who's near you, you can provide better help to than somebody distant. And so if we just feel good about sending a check off or even worse, sending our tax payment off to our government and then the government jumping in and providing international aid to some place in Africa. I think that's bad news. And so I think uh, similar to the outcomes we get through what Hayek was saying with decentralized behavior, we're getting that in poverty uh, help as well. Yeah. So. No, I agree. I think increasingly we kind of need to laugh at people who argue that we could like make the world better by sending foreign aid off. Uh, not people who like out of the goodness of their hearts are saying that, but like the experts who are like, here's how we fix the world and this is going to be my plan. Mm -hmm. Because increasingly, like, uh, again, uh, I've, I've just been made more and more pessimistic over time that it, like it actually can even work. Like not that, you know, we should mm -hmm. do it. And I'm not, you know, from like, you can make some rights argument that, well, it's not fair to tax people for other, but you could make that argument. But even like you know, ignoring all that, like, could it even work? And I think Justin's point's really salient here. We have the benefit of history now. Things get declassified over time. One example of the fact that like foreign aid usually actually is not to make people better, but is to advance our own like military interests. And you can Google this. This is no conspiracy. National Security Memorandum 200. If you want to look into that, we had a lot of population aid in the 70s and 80s. We still have a lot today, but that's when it kind of started. And this aid was thought with thinking, well, how can we help? You know, the, the surface was how can we help people have the number of kids they want to have in, you know, South America, Africa, you know, some of these uh, less developed countries in the in these continents. And, you know, that, that was the face we put on, but national security memorandum tells the reason that we did that. And the reason is pretty explicit. It says, well, we want access to min minerals and natural resources. And if those people over there have too many babies, they're going to want the minerals and natural resources, which means we get less. And I'm not being like negative in my reading of it. It's pretty plain. You can read it there. It says that almost explicitly. And so we often pretend that our, you know, aid is to benefit other people. 
But I think a lot of the time our aid is to benefit our military industrial complex. You know, it's no uh, no coincidence that it's the national security memorandum that that's talking that's talking about that our, our military interest in our military industrial complex has affected, you know, the aid that we give pretty consistently over time. And so not only am I pessimistic about government aid, not something like what Russ does with the Guatemala trip, not only am I pessimistic about it in theory, like in practice, it just hasn't worked. And I, I'm tired of like trying to pretend like I should expect it's just going to change. Like, you know, suddenly we've got the nice people and in the past we had the evil people and now the nice people are going to fix it. It's like, this is a goofy way to look at history. Uh, we should just acknowledge we have the same people today as we had back then. It's not going to work. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And when we come back, I, from what you said there, Peter, I, I don't want to underestimate the propaganda that can come out of the military complex that gets us thinking a certain way that maybe this is good. And also, if we dumped it to the private sector completely, I can see people saying, well, that's not fair. I'd rather have forced taxation to make that guy pay too, because it's not fair that just me, the giving kind-hearted person is going to carry the load. So, you know, do we have a a free rider problem in regard to that as we collectively try to think about giving around the world. All right, we'll be back in just a bit. Ottawa University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. Each of these fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa University. This spring, Ottawa University is organizing a PPE League competition of politics, philosophy, and economics. Students in this competition will compete leveraging the ideas of philosophy, politics, and economics in various events. If you're a professor or an advisor of college students and you're interested in your school competing in PPE League this spring, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. By 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. We have some great programming going on for high school students. We have an online microeconomics class. Yes, you can earn college credit for $200 by taking an online class. It's affordable, flexible, layered with support. Our new online micro is optimized for you. If you'd like to consider some events for your high school students or that class, please contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. All right, so we're back and... Um, Wanted to get into this propaganda thing. It's something that we've talked a while ago um, that maybe some of our feelings that we have towards the U.S. intervening in some way militarily comes to us from some of the things we're exposed to with the advertising or other propaganda. And uh, Justin, I know you've kind of explored that a little bit in the past. Is there something to that? Yeah. If you look at where and when the United States decides to flex its muscle, either militarily or in service of humanitarian aid, I think you can usually find, and you know, I've said this a little bit earlier, that these are just really entwined with the United States military. Complex. Yeah, the military-industrial <laughs> complex, but the advancing the interests of the military-industrial complex. And sometimes people say things like, well, what we need to do is kind of separate the government's giving from the military, like kind of disentangle this giving from the military-industrial complex. 
And I think that that's impossible. And uh, it makes a good case for something that Peter said earlier, like this kind of a transforming the world in this way just isn't possible. And I think that actually we should expect that the stories we get from the military industrial complex about where it's giving its, where it's deploying its troops and giving its money, we should expect that to be propaganda. We know that the people in, in these positions have interests of their own. And we know that the United States has geopolitical interests. And we also know that there are an enormous amount of problems and needy people in the world. Now, given that the amount of suffering in the world is really, really high, and there are all these enormous problems all over the place, and given that we know that the United States government has some kinds of interest and the people in power in these positions have certain kinds of interest, we should expect them to pick out those problems to solve, which can advance their personal interests at the same time, right? Uh, it seems to me like this was one of the features that you get out of like public choice mm-hmm. economics, right? Yeah. That, you know, if if a person gets to solve, gets to choose which problems they're going to direct your attention towards, they are almost always going to choose the problems to direct your attention towards that they have a solution for that will make them slightly better off uh, when they try to solve it. Never mind the fact that they usually don't uh, um, either. So I don't know if you guys had thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I wanted to just add the propaganda. Some of the propaganda I was thinking about that I didn't know about from previously talking about was the um, movie system. So the military might donate planes and helicopters to make certain movies, but then they have a little discretion on what that looks like, how the, our military is portrayed. And so we go watch the blockbuster film and it's the United States military coming in like a superhero to rescue the the people who are oppressed in some other country against the villains. And it's all this fictional narrative, but it, it is heartwarming for us as Americans, makes us more willing to maybe support military things and not, you know, feel bad about going into those countries because that's the way it looks like it's going to turn out when really, as Peter was pointing out earlier and Justin, just the opposite is true. Like we we can go in and really do some harm by uh, yeah. engaging that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Any listeners interested in this topic, uh, we did a podcast with Chris Coyne on his book. Do either of you remember? Oh, it escapes me. Oh, uh, Tyranny Comes Home, I, I think is where he discusses this yeah, with, with Abby Hall. He talks about the effects of the, on the movie industry. Yeah. So, so Peter, you had something to say about the, the end game, that uh, maybe that's perception that influences us with unduly supporting these interventions. Yeah. So I I think increasingly, one of the increasingly to me, one of the drivers of this sort of like militaristic attitude, it seems, is this idea of the end of history. And this, uh, you know, this is often associated with Francis Fukuyama. I think he's is sometimes wrongly uh, stated, but I don't think it, this idea is original to him. Uh, you know, the Marxists will have a similar idea. And th- there's a theory, listeners out there, and it takes on several different forms. But there's a theory that there is some like end point to history or some sort of thing that we are progressing towards. It's almost like, you know, uh, you can think of a marble and, you know, it's in a bowl and it's kind of rolling towards some final place. And that's like the end of history. And so in Fukuyama's view, this American liberalism kind of represents the end of political history. It's countries will tend to converge around this thing. They might go off one way or another. There will be, you know, people fighting and, you know, you'll occasionally have a Russia kind of run off into authoritarianism. But to Fukuyama, you know, liberal democracy is sort of like the resting point of governments. You're not going to have a new creation 
creation that's going to come out and sort of like revolutionize society. You know, in Marx's view, this was the idea of communism would eventually be the final resting place of history, that the workers would revolt, and we'd end up in the communist utopia, and, and we'd be at the end of things. And I'm not totally unsympathetic to the idea that history has like some sort of trajectory. I tend to think of it as a spiritual trajectory, though. Uh, not necessarily a political one. And I actually don't see there being an end to history and politics. An alternative view, and one that I hold to, is that history tends to be more cyclical. But here's why it matters. If you view the world as uh, tending towards this idea of like, well, liberal democracy will eventually win out and reign, and you think about you know the military, well, it, it must be a good thing to usher that in or to bring that along. It seems plausible that you could improve the world by bringing everyone towards that final resting point of liberal democracy if you believe that's a final resting point. If instead you, like me, believe that things are more cyclical, that sometimes you're going to have more authoritarian regimes, sometimes you're going to have more democratic or liberal regimes, sometimes it's going to be run by elites, sometimes one person, and that this will kind of fight and change over time. And actually new political theories, philosophies uh, can create new sorts of regimes. I also put that on the table. Uh, so I guess I'm not purely cyclical in that sense. Uh, but but the point being is, if you believe something other than that there's a final resting point, you might be more skeptical of in intervening abroad. Because if it's a possibility to you that, you know, maybe the world could become more authoritarian than liberal once again, then it's possible you could set that off. If the world is ultimately going to, you know, fall into this, you know, final resting place of liberal democracy, at least to a large extent, uh, then you don't have to worry so much about that. And so I think like this almost like political end times, eschatology almost, really incentivizes uh, bad or uncareful action on the part of the U.S. and uh, people who are playing military affairs. So, Man, something you said just really resonated with me on, on the cycle, because I, I agree. And I, I, I'd like to add that a person like Mansur Olson uh, talked about the sclerosis of collective action, really powerful book, the, the Rise and Decline of Nations. He probably should have had a Nobel Prize, but he died too early. And he basically describes in that book how democracy de eventually devolves into an authoritarian type regimes. And so I think that plays into your cycle theory, right? Is that we go into an authoritarian regime and then we get all the bad results of authoritarianism and then we rot, democracy rises. But democracy doesn't persist because of what Olson talks about, that it eventually feeds on itself mm -hmm. and turns back into an authoritarian regime. And that gives us this cycle through history that I think is empirical as well, that we the rise and, and fall of different regimes in different countries. I would uh, push back a little bit on like, uh, it's unclear that either of you actually think this, but the cycle implies that we're like the same thing happens over and over again. And like, and I, I think that I too agree with you that there isn't like an end point in history, but I don't think we also get locked into a particular cycle. I do think that what happens is regimes rise up and then they, they will decay or fall or turn in on themselves. And I also think that there are better and worse ways to govern. So uh, this isn't like a completely, this isn't like the nihilism of, well, it, you know, all regimes are different and, you know, some, some have they all have their place or whatever. But that as circumstances change, as they change historically, different regimes will succeed and others will fail. And so that leads to this idea that, you know, you are just going to have kind of a fractalization of, of different kinds of regimes through history. And you are not going to end up with this end of history position that either Marxism or, you know, the the uh, naive reading of, of Huntington gets you either. 
I think Peter would probably agree too. I don't definitely don't want to imply a cycle that's somehow predictable, but rather that it's just this process that's going to ebb and flow over time, but not be predictable in a way because that would be kind of back to the fatal conceit thing that it's gonna it's gonna be very organic, but there's movement of it. It's always in a flux of either becoming more authoritarian or moving towards more decentralized. Yeah. I mean, maybe the way that I would put it is like all human systems are necessarily flawed. And because all human systems are necessarily flawed, the seeds of the destruction of the system are sown in the inception. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't, the cycle is almost to that. It's, it's so, it's not predictable, but it's like in a very abstract sense, new idea or old idea being repurposed kind of takes over government is based off that. But over time, the flaws in that ideal system uh, start to overcome the society and it, it can no longer, you know, achieve its like current opulence and it turns into something else. Yeah. So in that sense, it's like an uh, like a sine wave cyclicality rather than a circle. Yeah, I, I don't I don't agree that like you'll have democracy and then you'll yeah. have oligarchy and then you'll have authoritarian. Like, right. I, right. I, I think if things were that predictable, it would yeah. be much more obvious than it is. Yeah. But what I I do want to kind of dismiss is this idea that like we as a society are somehow like remarkably different than every other society that has ever been. And like somehow we've achieved this new thing that will last forever. I think that's the, you know, I want to say conceit because we've been talking about the fatal conceit, but it's the hubris that like is most important to avoid is this idea that we are at the unique point in history. We have this new unique idea that's never been tried before, and we are immune from the problems that have faced past societies because of the unique idea. I think like if you look back at history, most societies believe this about themselves and like, you know, it's different. And even like, you know, the monarchies, it's like, well, well, our monarchy's line is different than all the other monarchies lines. And, you know, we have this line to God that no one else has through our church or whatever. Everyone thinks they're unique as a society and as like a, a political organization, because it gives you hope that you can win if you're different than everybody else who over time has lost. So isn't it even more hubristic than that, though, too? Because it's not just saying like we've achieved something that will last for us forever. Right. It's saying we've achieved something that we know is going to work for everybody else yes. forever too. And we're going to change everybody else to the thing that we have. Yeah. And that's insane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and uh, again, it's just like something that needs to be addressed, not with like, you know, pessimism, but so like sobriety, right? Like just a recognition that like, there's nothing about what we have that makes it inevitable. And I, I think that's the important thing. This podcast has made me think of a policy prescription that I want to throw out that might be fool's gold, but it seems brilliant to me at the time. So in in thinking about whether people moving everything to the private sector is a unicorn, probably, right? Pulling funds away. However, uh, and I also think that there might be some fair arguments on, well, that's not fair that this person isn't contributing to whatever somebody's perception of the public good is through taxes. So here's a step in the right direction in the in the way of coasts that we can't necessarily head for you change to utopia, but maybe we can make a step in the right direction. So the policy change would be to take all of the money that's currently used for international aid slash intervention purposes. And that all turns into private sector. Like the United States is just going to completely rely on Americans to help fund foreign efforts totally privately. But the money that was being spent on international intervention aid programs will now be used domestically to help our international aid programs. That way the tax system stays the same. People are still contributing the same amount they did before, but 
And, and I'm not saying, remember, I, I'm not even a fan of that, but I think moving one step in that direction, if we pulled all international efforts and then from a budget perspective, just refocus that money domestically. Like, I think that could even get some support. What do you mean refocus? Like to f- focus it on international charities that are U- U.S. based, so or? that we would pull all public U.S. government federal money that we was was going towards international aid and various interventions. Take that number. Let's just call it a trillion dollars, just to keep it easy. Now that trillion will still be spent, but reallocated to domestic efforts. Whether that's water in Michigan, uh, yeah, water in Michigan, uh, helping the poor, the homeless, you name it, whatever. It could be our existing programs now have better funding, or maybe sure. some new programs bubble up. But all of that money would still, so the tax system stays the same, the budget stays the same. It's just that that money's being reallocated exclusively domestically. And then we just say, hey, Americans, you need to step to the plate to help Turkey, or you need to step to the plate to uh, donate funds towards uh, the Ukraine to fight Russia. So fool's gold, or I'm ready to be pounded now. So so all the special interests that benefit they're going to be all foreign aid. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say they would. All <laughs> the money uh, pouring in they lose to our it. federal government, they somehow, with the congressmen that they own, this somehow goes through without them. Yes, I mean, I, I, I'm in favor of it, but I'm almost, I'm also in favor of everyone having a pony. You think it's, it's like, too far unicorn? Yeah, yeah, I, I have the exact same reaction. I like the policy. If I had a button that I could push to make that happen, yeah, I'd make that happen because yeah. I think it would be better both for us here, but also actually abroad. Actually, mm-hmm. it might even be worse for us here in a roundabout <laughs> way because maybe then more, like more people would have the problems that we cause internationally here. <laughs> as we think about that. Uh, but it would certainly help people abroad, in my opinion, if we, we stopped uh, mucking things up. That's what I was thinking. Ideas. But yeah, I, I agree with Justin. It's just the, the problem is like this whole thing is endogenous. It's caused from the inside, right? And so like the interests that funnel the money abroad to these projects do it because it benefits them. And if we like moved the money domestically, then that same force would just act to create the same thing again. Right. You know, I don't know. So the only thing I'd say to push back a little bit on that is that if if we garnered, if the general public, the voters, let's be specific, if the voters supported that conceptually, the politicians would start to follow suit and we might be able to squeeze the special interests out of it to some degree. Well, the problem is concentrated benefits disperse costs, right? You're talking about giving the benefits to probably like a thousand people, you know, multi-million dollar benefits to thousands of people, like a thousand people and taking that profit and giving it to 300 million Americans. I mean, just, you know, the nature of math is like, there's no way to get around the the logic of special interest problem. It's that at the end of the day, you're take, trying to take money from a few who are getting a huge benefit and give it to a lot who would get a small benefit. And it's just very difficult to do that. Like through sheer okay, force well, of well, will. careful though, because I think part of the benefit is me as an American let's just call me a rich American, me as a rich American, getting benefit knowing that that policy change directly funds some people in need. So I'm getting yeah. the benefit without getting any monetary benefit. I'm getting the a benefit. Yeah, but that benefit spread over the entire population of the U.S., whereas the benefit of the special interest groups was just focused on that smaller number yeah, necessarily. Now, I think through sheer power of will or ideology or something, like you can overcome the logic of special interest. I think it's possible. It just doesn't happen as often. So I'm again, I'm not opposed to it. I push the button if the the policy button were in front of me. I don't think it's going to happen. And actually, 
unfortunately, and this is like really nihilistic way to look at politics. So I, I apologize for the hopelessness imbued here. But the fact that we don't have that is evidence that would be difficult <laughs> to have that, right? Sure. Uh, I think to some extent, though I do like, I'll, I like I'll the policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, the general public learning some of what we've talked yes. about on this podcast that, hey, these efforts internationally have largely That's right. failed. That's right. So yeah. like, why are we doing, you know, that would be part of the campaign is That's right. bringing that to their attention. Yeah. Which I don't think a lot of them understand. Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree. Because the military industrial complex is keeping that out of the movies and that out of anything else that comes up. And the average Joe out in America is just feeling a little bit good that, hey, I'm glad we're helping the people in Ukraine or I'm glad we're helping the people in Turkey to rebuild after the earthquake or, you know, whatever. I think you guys are wildly (laughs) overestimating the general public here. Uh, I, mean, I think we have people with bumper stickers on their car that say I'm already against the next war and a bumper sticker that is the Ukrainian flag. It's always different this time. It, yeah. It's always different. It's always time. different this time. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. same, you know, Vietnam was bad, but the Iraq war, this is different. The Iraq war was bad, but you know, yeah. You understand this is different. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm more pessimistic than either of you are i think well it is the benefit of being a professor we get to pontificate on stuff like that and, and maybe maybe this is the seed of uh somebody out there being able to come up with a policy change that so would be preferable what would, would uh i i think just to let's just say take a step towards my policy change any maneuver that somewhat reflects that would be good so let's just say there's a little hundred thousand dollar project that that hundred thousand comes back domestically like anything moving that direction is moving the direction that we prefer yeah that it wouldn't have to be as i proposed it all internet you know international intervention has to move but maybe politicians would be creative at coming up with you know that that concept might work for this particular situation and then a policy change moves that direction and then maybe slowly but surely we we chip away at it I think this uh, that sets up for more special interests, in my opinion, that have people working, at least domestically, like you said, that could be a good idea, but still pushing their own agenda instead of the agenda of the majority of the people. And that's where the issue lies. So I think that the instead of pushing the issue internationally, we'd have more issues domestically with cronyism. Yeah. And so- no, no, you're totally right. I mean, it all, anytime there's policy change, it, it mobilizes the special interest and and but special interest. You know, how should I say this? We're putting a negative spin on special interest, but it, it can have some positive outcomes too. If 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 we believe that a, at least a move from internationally to domestically, yeah. if we just compare that, yeah. yeah, let's call it special interest situation versus that special interest, I think we've made progress. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so to clarify, I I agree, Russ, that if like you can move the equilibrium of knowledge out there, like get, allow teach people a little bit more, then you can move the needle a little bit. I think you saying $100,000 is pretty accurate. I think like it would be a very small movement of the needle. Uh, I'm skeptical of our ability to do that too much, even though I think it's possible. Don't get me wrong. You know, demand curve slope down, supply curve slope up. If you give people more knowledge about something they don't like, they're going to be more opposed to it. I completely agree with that. But it, I think it won't help that much. And the reason I'm skeptical about the scale is that if people want to learn about something, they will spend resources to learn about the thing. And so people learn a lot about, you know, the houses that they want to live in and the cars that they want to drive and all those things because it like personally affects them. 
And I actually don't think people care that much about the effect of U.S. foreign aid and military spending. Uh, you can teach them a little bit that might make them upset or mad. But I think if people really cared that much, I mean, there's Wikipedia articles about this. It's actually not super hard to find, uh, you know, the injustices we perpetuated abroad or whatever. You know, the, the, this isn't like super secret anymore. Some people just don't want to like talk about it. Like you, you if you try to have a conversation you know, even about like you know, MK Ultra, which was when the CIA did a lot of experiments on American citizens against their knowledge and will. Like you try to, and this is on Wikipedia again. This is on conspiracy theory. Uh, and you, if you talk to someone about that, uh, in you know the United States, they'll say, "Man, that's really bad." But they don't want to talk about it that much. Like they're they're just not super interested in it. It's almost like tacitly they've accepted that this sort of thing happens and they say yeah you know kind of a whatever thing. And I think to some extent that's true of our foreign policy too. Is even if you told someone something like that. The fact that they didn't already know is kind of evidence that they don't care that much. Yeah, things in front of them, right? Like, how am I going to afford groceries this week? That's all of a sudden more important. than I think on average, people are right. And that includes about, you know, the U.S. government does. And when they when they're not right, it's because they don't care that much to learn. So, well, ironically, too, if and I think this is right, if you're saying like people with more pressing problems can't pay attention to this stuff, then caring about this stuff actually tends to be maybe even like a luxury good. And to the extent that these policies actually destroy wealth, they increase the number of people who don't have the luxury of caring about mm-hmm. caring about it. Again, I, but I think I agree with you that the policy is good. I even agree that there's some marginal which we can help. I think it's pretty limited. But part of that is just like a recognition of like what what we're up against, which is like ultimately like a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, talking on the podcast can help against that. But we should also recognize like somewhat our limitations. Well, once again, it seems like we've solved one of the world's problems (laughs) (laughs) and talking about the world today. So. Oh, that was great. Uh, This has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Please forward this podcast along to your friends and family that might enjoy listening to it and find some other titles that they might find appealing as well. We talk about personal finance. We talk about economics and inflation and philosophy and Christianity. We got lots of fun stuff to do, and it might not all be for you, but I bet there's a topic that somebody would like. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.